Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, the passage for this morning is in your bulletin insert as usual. It's our normal practice. Uh, those of you who uh, are members or regular attenders know this, but those of you who are visiting likely don't. It's our normal practice uh, at Ascension to work our way through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings. Uh, we've dabbled in some thematic series over the summer, but today we begin a new study for the fall, a study of the book of Acts. And we'll be in this book a while. I'm not exactly sure how long. Uh, we will likely take breaks here and there as well. But I'm excited to be here Many of you, I know, are familiar uh, with the book of Acts. It's okay if you're here this morning and you're not so familiar with Acts or you've never read the book of Acts. To make sure that we're all on the same page, even before I read our text for this morning or we get into the heart of the book, I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page. The reason the book of Acts is called Acts is because traditionally it's the Acts of the Apostles. See, the book of Acts is a book of selective history. It's not fantasy. It's not story. It is recorded history. And it's a book that chronicles some of the things that the followers of Jesus said and did some 30 years after He died, rose, and left this earth. It's a book about the Acts of the Apostles. However, as we're going to see, the book of Acts is ultimately not about the Apostles. The book of Acts is about the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. Through those whom He has called. Through the Spirit whom He is about to send and through the Word that He has left. You see, Jesus has left the earth. And by this time, He has left the earth. We are going to hear about Him leaving the earth. But His work is far from done. And that's why I've titled this morning's message, which really could be a title for the whole series, the whole book of Acts, I've entitled it, Unfinished Business. Because that's what the book of Acts is about. We often hear about the very the common, the very ordinary beginnings of Christianity. Unskilled fishermen called alongside of this rabbi. But the book of Acts doesn't necessarily fit that mold, at least not in its author. You see, the book of Acts was written by Luke. The same author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke the doctor. Luke, the well-educated man. Luke, likely a man of influence. A man of some means. And Luke writes these two books. He writes the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then he writes this book of Acts to the same person. And though they are disconnected in our Bibles, to Luke they're not. Essentially, we have volume one, and now today we begin volume two. 
So that's a little background about this book that we're about to start. So let's dive in. Today we're just going to cover the first 11 verses, Acts 1, 1 through 11. Listen as I read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start this morning's message with just a few questions. If I asked you, and I know most of you in this room, so I think I know most of your answers, if not all of your answers. If I asked you, does it matter that Jesus died on a cross, what would you say? Well, I hope, well good, I heard a yes. It does matter. I hope that all of us who know and love the Lord Jesus would say that it matters. His substitutionary atonement for our sins is absolutely necessary for us to be made right with God. It matters. If I asked you, does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead, what would you say? Yes. Paul addressed this point pretty pointedly in his letter to the Corinthian church, saying that if Christ didn't rise, if Jesus isn't alive, then our faith is futile. And we're still dead in our sins. But what about if I asked you, does it matter that Jesus ascended into heaven? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys knew that was... Yes, it matters. But you've got to admit, maybe this one is a little bit fuzzier in our minds. I kind of led you to the correct answer. But maybe some of us have thought or are thinking, I mean, the ascension is cool and all. It provides some theatrics and builds some tension for the future. 
It's, it's a nice exclamation point for Jesus to a job well done, but I'm not really sure what the ascension means to me. Maybe to some degree you're there, and that's okay if you are. This morning, there's a lot we could say from these first 11 verses, a lot we could say to set up the book of Acts, but this morning in Acts 1, 1 to 11, I want to make the point to you that the ascension of Jesus matters. The ascension matters. You see, before we get into the heart of the book of Acts, before we get into what the church looks like and what the church begins to do in its In these beginning stages of infancy, Luke focuses us in on an event that really undergirds all that is to come. You see, the ascension does more than simply make a point that Jesus is gone, but he's coming back for us in the same way. Now, the ascension is crucial to God's plan for us. And because of that, the ascension of Jesus is a wonderful encouragement to us as the church of Jesus. And so I have this morning for us from this text three great encouragements that I want to guide us as we walk through this passage for the next few minutes. Three great encouragements, and the first one is this. Because Jesus has ascended, you have his powerful presence. Because Jesus has ascended, you have his powerful presence. And you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because Jesus has left this earth, he's here with us? Yes. Of course, Jesus isn't here with us in flesh and blood. No, we still long for that embrace. At least I hope you long for that embrace from Jesus. But through the presence of the promised Spirit, Jesus is really here. See, this is in part what Jesus says in verse 8 to his followers when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that power means for our lives in just a few minutes. But what I want to focus on right now is the fact that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus isn't absent, but he's here and he is still speaking. Put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. I can only imagine that the presence of Jesus, especially the instructions that he gave his followers, was something that the disciples panicked about not having when Jesus died. He's gone. What do we do now? They are saying to themselves. But then he rises from the dead and he appears. And he's teaching them. And he's walking around with them. And they say, oh good, he's not gone. He's with us. And what does Jesus do during that 40-day period? What Luke tells us, he's walking around, he's teaching, and he's giving many proofs 
many proofs about who he is and what he's done. Just as a little side note, Jesus isn't afraid of the skeptics. He's not afraid of those who have questions, of those who aren't sure. He doesn't call you and me to a blind faith. No, he gave his followers proofs because he wanted them to be sure. He wanted them to know without a shadow of a doubt. It wasn't just some supernatural no. But remember what I've done. See, Jesus is glad to put the doubters to rest. And so Jesus is around His disciples are glad, but now what is going on in verses 9 to 11? I mean, we can, I can put myself in the gaze of those followers. They're gazing up into heaven, jaws dropping, a gaze of awe, a gaze of wonder, a gaze of unbelief, a gaze of, where are you going? He's leaving us again. What are we going to do? But Jesus had said, yes, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving you alone. You see, he had told them that this was coming. If you flip back just a few pages in your Bibles to John, John chapter 16, we read this amazing interaction. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says to his disciples, In John 16, 5, he says, Now I am going to him who sent me. But none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Did you hear that? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And then jumping down to verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them. You cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. What does this mean? It means Jesus is still here. It means Jesus is still speaking. And we ask, but how how can this be better? Well, for starters, Jesus at one time, at least when He was on earth, His words were limited to a time and a place. But now, as a result of the ascension and through the ministry of the Spirit and through the Word that He left and through the people that He calls, His ministry, His words, go out to all the earth simultaneously. See, this truth of Jesus still speaking, it sneaks out in the rest of Scripture as well. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, Paul says this, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him. Let me repeat that verse. That's not the way you learned of Christ, assuming that you heard about Him or were taught in Him. But here's the thing about that verse. It doesn't actually say you heard about Him. The translators have put that word in there to smooth it out 
And to avoid confusion as you're reading the Scriptures, it actually says, you heard Him. Not of Him, not about Him, but Him. Jesus taught you, O people of Ephesus, Paul says. But the people of Ephesus never met Jesus. Jesus was never there. He was gone by this time, but His presence through His words, not metaphorically, but really were there. Jesus spoke to you. You heard Him. The ascension matters because His presence is here. And so what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? Well, friends, brothers and sisters, it's a promise that takes feet every time you get up in the morning and put your Bible in that lap of yours. Jesus is there. He's speaking to you. This is a promise that takes feet every time you come in this place on Sunday morning. Every time you make it a priority to be in the house of the Lord, to hear His Word. Jesus is here. He is speaking to us. So the question comes, are we acknowledging that? Are we listening in light of that reality? That's the first truth that I want us to see about the ascension this morning. You have His powerful presence. But there's another encouragement, and it's this. Because Jesus has ascended, you have a perfect plea. Because Jesus has ascended, you have a perfect plea. I'm sure some of you, those of you who watch the news, who read the news, saw some about the recent trial of the gunman from Fort Hood who killed 13 people in a, in a rampage. Nadal Hassan is his name, and he did something in his court-martial which isn't seen very often. Never heard of it before. He made his own plea. He pled guilty by himself. He was his own pleer. And there's all sorts of speculations about why he's doing that. I think his motives ultimately were evil. But can you even imagine? The judge says, how do you plea? It's a question that you and I never want to receive. Because if you're receiving that question, it's because you are charged with something. And guilty or not, you've got some explaining to do. Well, the reality is that we all stand before a judge, a perfect judge, a judge who created us, who has the right to scrutinize us in every way, and our actions, our hearts, put us in a precariously, a potentially precarious position before this judge. But unlike Nadal Hassan, we need not enter our own plea. We dare not enter our own plea. It's foolish for us because we're not alone. 
Because of the ascension, we have an advocate at God's right hand. And you know, those of you who know the Lord Jesus, that this is the gospel. Hebrews 9 declares this truth when it says, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands. Jesus was never a priest here on earth, which are copies of the true things. But he has gone into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On your behalf. Jesus died and rose again that your status might be changed. But he ascended that he might daily intercede for you. For your weakness in your sin. And it's because of that pleading, it's only because of that pleading before the holy throne of God, a throne that caused Isaiah the prophet to be undone and to say, woe is me. It's only because of that advocate and that plea that you can approach with confidence and boldness. Our catechisms, our historical documents, our heritage, they address this issue, they address this truth. The Westminster Larger Catechism says in question and answer 55, how does Christ make intercession? Listen to the answer, it's rich. Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance of their persons and services. You see, the ascension matters. It matters because you have a plea. You have a perfect plea. Well, there's one more encouragement that I want us to think about this morning from this this act, this event in redemptive history, and it's this. Because Jesus has ascended, you have a purpose. Because Jesus has ascended, you have a purpose. You have a mission. Here comes the annual obligatory Lord of the Rings illustration. At the end of the return of the king, there's this beautiful scene. A scene that has been performed in movies and reality on thousands of occasions and in thousands of different ways. It's the coronation of the king. And Aragorn, with the battle behind him, kneels on the steps and receives the crown on his head only to rise to the top of the stairs and turn and take his place as the rightful ruler of Middle-earth. See, the ascension of Jesus was coronation day. That's what it was. It is Jesus taking his rightful place of rule, and it wasn't steps that he ascended, it was a cloud. We think a cloud. 
But remember, clouds in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament were pictures. They were manifestations of God's glory and of God's presence. And so when Luke tells us that Jesus goes up into the clouds, he's not making a comment about the weather of the day. No, he's saying, he's making a statement that Jesus is ascending to glory to the presence of the Father. The King has gone to His throne and all rule and authority are His. But His kingdom is still being received. And there's unfinished business that needs to be done. And part of Jesus' words, part of His instructions, the encouragement of the angels who stood as the men gazed into the sky was that Jesus wants to do this through you. And the disciples here in Acts chapter 1, they still don't seem to get it. Do you notice that? Their question in verse 6 reveals that they still misunderstand in some way what Jesus was doing and what He was going to be doing through them. Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see... They still wanted the glory days of David and and Solomon. They wanted the Romans off their back. Off Israel's back. And they were ready for it now. And that's all rolled up in that one question. But Jesus had something much bigger in mind. And it begins to get played out in this book that we're about to study. as His message, as His Gospel begins to spread like wildfire. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's how far you need to take My message, He says. And indeed, that's what they begin to do. Those places, those reference points provide the outline to this book. Chapters 1 through 7, they're in Jerusalem, and the Lord brings suffering because they're having a hard time moving out. And so he brings suffering, and then they move out in chapters 8 through 12 to Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, chapter 13 and beyond. See, they were called to be witnesses. That was their purpose. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, they had a life and a death and a resurrection, and yes, an ascension that they needed to attest to. Over the next couple months, we are going to relive that early proclamation that began as a speck. A little tiny speck. And now thousands of years later, thousands of miles away, here we are. As we relive that growth, as we relive what God called the church to be, the challenge will come to us. Now I know that these disciples, these men were actual eyewitnesses to His physical presence, His physical glory. They they absolutely hold a unique role and a unique place in the building of God's church. Our role is not exactly like theirs. But our role is like theirs. 
and the fact that we're called to bear witness. This is our purpose. It's our mission. It's our privilege. And getting back to the very first point of this message, He hasn't left us alone. The Spirit that raised Him from the dead is ours. The Spirit given to these men as as Jesus speaks here is ours. That same Spirit that drove these men to die for that proclamation. Well, this is a whole other sermon and a whole other series of sermons, I suppose. But let me just give you three things in this final point. Three things that His Spirit brings us as we think about this purpose, as we think about this witness. First, boldness. 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 and 8, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Brothers and sisters, you are not powerless. What can man do to you? You have His powerful presence. Pray for that boldness. Secondly, the Spirit gives you wisdom. Acts 6.10, we'll get to it in several weeks. It said of Stephen, they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. I know you don't know what to say. I don't know what to say a lot of times. You know that. And yet He will give you the words. You have the Spirit of wisdom. And then lastly, freedom. Because you know what? The work of witness is ultimately His work. 1 Corinthians 3.7 So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the strength. And so don't feel the burden of success. I know you long for those people in your life to come to know the Lord Jesus and to be saved from darkness. But it's not yours to give. The Lord calls you to be faithful and to rest. And the fact that He will do the work. Well, friends, I, I don't want to guilt you this morning. I don't want to feel guilty myself this morning. I know that we all wish that we were better at giving witness to what God has done in our lives and what He means to us. I know that. But I do want to remind you, I want to encourage you, as God's Word does here, to strive to put away your timidity, to strive to trust in the wisdom He provides, to strive to rest in the results that He brings about as you speak of Him. As you speak of Christ. I read a great great quote this week. Simply is this. We are all natural evangelists for the things that we love most. It's true, isn't it? We see a movie. Oh, my friends have got to see this. We're all natural evangelists for the things that we love most. Friends, the ascension matters. So this morning as you go from this place, rejoice that your Savior is no longer here. Even as you long for that day when your faith shall be made sight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this promise from the book of Acts concerning your presence. 
concerning Your power, concerning our purpose and the plea, Lord, we rest in these truths. Impress them upon our hearts that they might find deep root there. And for those who are here this morning who are skeptical, those who have not bowed the knee, those who don't know the Lord Jesus, Father, I pray that You would do Your work in them, gently showing them, revealing to them Your love, Your grace, Your mercy in Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, Amen.